ever since. I think we've sung that song, but that third stanza, church, did that grip you like it gripped me? Just to be able for like once in my life to write a, a stanza like that third verse. Just, just want to read it to you one more time. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Oftentimes, the frustration of a pastor teacher is trying to articulate the glorious goodness and majesty of who God is. And that line, just such a short economy of words, describes something so beautiful and so majestic. I just had to, I just had to read it again. Church, take your Bibles together with me. Let's turn to the book of Esther this evening and turn together to Esther chapter 9. We come this evening to Esther chapter 9. We'll look at verses 1 down through 17. That will be our aim this evening. This morning we looked at just three verses, and this evening we'll aim to try to take in 17 verses. Have no fear. We will go through the 17 verses a lot faster than we went through the three verses this morning. Esther chapter 9, and picking up there in verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred. In that day, the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could withstand them, because fear of them fell upon all the people. And all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all of those doing the king's work, helped the Jews. They've switched now. They were helping, if you remember, Haman. They now have new motivations for sparing their lives. They're now all in with a new prime minister. And so those that were once in the government officials helping Haman, they're now helping the Jews because the fear, notice verse 3, because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. Why? Verse 4, because Mordecai was great in the king's palace and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for this man Mordecai became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and they did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And he gives the names there of the ten sons of Haman. I'm going to skip there to just verse 10. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Notice this phrase will be repeated multiple times in this chapter, beginning right there. Number one. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Now, on the day, verse eleven, that of the number of those on that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan, the citadel, was brought to the king. And then the king turns to Esther and he said to Queen Esther, "The Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men in Shushan, the citadel, and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition?" It shall be granted to you, or what is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther responds and says, If it pleases the king, 
Let it be granted to the let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree. In other words, may we have an extension. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged, their bodies be hanged on the gallows to be visible and seen before all. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were, with, who were in Shushan gathered together again on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Shushan, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Second time we see that. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives and had rest from their enemies. They killed total 75,000 of their enemies in the provinces the, the, from the whole, but they did not lay hand on their plunder. That's the third time we see that phrase. Lastly, verse 17, this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th of the month, they rested and they made it a day of feasting and gladness. Well, this is the Word of God. What an interesting, interesting chapter, right? Last time together, we talked about the sudden turn of events. Chapter 8 was the chapter where everything changed. The, the whole book had been on a downward slope of a, a weighted cargo of destruction that was coming towards the Jews, and it was fastly coming, fastly approaching. And the Jews were at the bottom of the hill seeing this, this cargo full of TNT coming for their destruction to utterly obliterate them. And then in chapter 8, we saw everything changed. Oh, the difference a few hours can make, the difference that a day can make. In J.R.R. Tolkien's wonderful book, The Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo, the ring-bearing hobbit, bemoans to Gandalf. He responds to him and he says this regarding their plight, their circumstances, and their situation. It's one of the epic lines from the whole works. He turns to Gandalf, and Frodo says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. Gandalf responds to Frodo with this epic response, and he says this. He says, so do I, and so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Just an excerpt from literature. As we look here in the Word of God, we find that no doubt this echoes Mordecai and Esther's plight in their situation. Oftentimes throughout the book of Esther wondering, why did this happen, have to happen to us? Why are we in this situation? Why are we in these circumstances? And the reality is, is that we are not allowed or able to control the circumstances that we find ourselves in often in most of the time we cannot control circumstances that have been passed to us or even what we inherit from previous generations but what we can do is control what we do with them and we do that by submitting to their sovereign lord submitting to the providence of god submitting to his will and seeking his wisdom and his leading and his guidance sometimes previous generations leave messes for us to deal with don't they I'll never forget a, uh, an illustration given by a Bible teacher somewhere in my training and in the past. And one of the things he was kind of unpacking about love of neighbor is the chronological love of your neighbor. So when we think about loving your neighbor, love your neighbor chronologically. And he was just kind of taking a moment to apply the command there of loving um, your neighbor as yourself. And he was saying that even means the neighbor that is to come. It may be 
your children or future generations. It might mean the next owner of the house that's, that, that's coming as you, um, as you, you know, seal this thing up with duct tape, the person who purchased the house later on down the road <laughs> may be dealing with a boatload of problems because you cut a corner here. I know I'm starting to step on toes there. I'm going to move on. The idea is, is sometimes, though, when we do not follow the Lord wholly and fully, we're not loving our neighbor well. And that is certainly true as we kind of think back uh, to the beginning of the book of Esther. If you remember, the emphasis is put here on Haman, the Agagite. Haman, who was connected to the Amalekite people and enemies, the ancient enemy of, of Israel. Saul did not kill King Agag, where that's where Haman is referenced as Haman the Agagite. If you remember, Saul's refusal to kill Agag and his taking of the plunder, Saul did take of the plunder. He spared some of the animals and some of the resources and the things. When the prophet Samuel came, he came to Saul and he said, Saul, what, what is this bleeding that I hear? And, and Saul said, well, we've done all that the Lord commanded. And Samuel said, if you've done all that the Lord commanded, then what is the bleeding that I hear? Because the Lord told you to slay everything. Well, Saul did not obey the Lord fully, if you remember. And so generations later, we have Haman the Agagite looking, hating the Jews, hating one man, and his hatred of one man, Mordecai, leads to the attempted genocide of all of God's people, ultimately all the Jews. In fact, you could say it like this, Saul's lack of obedience and dealing and obeying the Lord's command in his time leads in one way to the situation that we see now in chapter 9 of the book of Esther. As we come to chapter 9, we see that the tables have turned. One decree still stands. It's the decree that Haman concocted. It's the decree that once the ring was given to King Haman, that Haman concocted the plan to eradicate the Jews on the certain day. And then, now the change is that decree cannot be nullified. It is the law of the Medes and the Persians. And so now there's also a, another decree that allows the Jews to fight back, to defend themselves, to fight to the death anyone who would seek to take their lives. So as we come to Esther chapter 9, after all this time, God's people are finally going to accomplish what previous generations, if you want to just put one man and one leader's face on it, you could point to King Saul. They're finally going to finish what previous generations have failed to accomplish. If chapter 9 here teaches us anything, it's the continued theme, if you're tired of hearing it, well, you're going to hear it again, is that God is sovereign. And it reminds us of the continued theme that God rules history. Esther chapter 9 teaches us that God is ruling, actively ruling over history. And even though he's not specifically mentioned here in chapter 9, we see his hand on every page between every line. We find that the enemy of God cannot and will not impede God's plan of redemption. Again, time and time again in the word of God, God rescues his people he advances his rule. He ensures that his kingdom will advance and that the redemptive work of the cross will happen right on schedule. God is always on time. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7 says this, Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward and forever. Well, how is that going to happen, Isaiah? Well, then he adds this phrase, verse 7, the zeal of the Lord 
will perform this. Isaiah is a different book of the Bible, but that little phrase amplifies what's happening here. What is happening in Esther chapter 9? What is happening is that the zeal of the Lord is performing the deliverance of his people. He is superintending the project of the Messiah coming to redeem his people from their sins. Well, as the day comes here in Esther chapter 9, the day for the intended massacre, the Jews now rise up and they're able to defend themselves, yet they are vastly outnumbered. Again, it's believed that the empire as a whole is anywhere from 50 million to 75 million people in the Persian Empire. This is huge. That's compared to the total population of the Jews believed to be anywhere from 2 to 3 million. If the empire unites against the Jews following the, the, the law of the land, they will be immediately outnumbered and eradicated. In fact, Napoleon once remarked that in a, in a super smart way, being, um, um, the word escapes my mind, but he's being sarcastic, Napoleon once remarked that God was always on the side of the largest army. And if he is right, then the Jews, in comparison of the numbers, do not stand a chance. Number one, we notice, and I'll just mention these headings as we come to them. In verses 1 through 4, the day comes, and it's the day of the decree. And immediately, in verse 1, we see the complete, the reversal of the circumstances that are there. Notice with me verse 1. Now the twelfth of the month... The, uh, that is the month of Adar, on the 13th day, the time came. This is the day of the decree. The time came for the king's command and his, for his decree to be executed. And on the day that the enemies of the Jews, notice here, had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred. I just love the succinct statement there. <laughs> the opposite occurred. That did not happen. And in that, the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. That phrase, the enemies of the Jews, the verb there, th those who had hoped to overpower, it's, it's translated and it means someone that has great anticipation. They're salivating this moment. They're waiting for this day. The enemies of the Jews, understanding the density of that word, they're fully anticipating following the first law, the decree that was given. Evidently, many Persians were salivating, thinking that the Jews would be easy prey, and their minds are thinking probably a number of things. We'll be getting new homes today. We'll be obtaining new fields and farms, cattle, clothing, possessions, and all of that will happen before the sun sets this very day. But here our verse tells us that not only they're wrong, but Napoleon's wrong after all. It's not the greatest in number that win. God obviously is giving his people favor and power and victory and turning, no doubt, many with his restraining grace, restraining many of the Persians. If you just think about the sheer numbers, uh, he's returning the hearts of many of the Persians away. Had they all united against him, they would have, by the sheer numbers, overruled. But God is the one who overrules. And it's just, let's just remind ourselves, church, of the great texts of the Bible, just to give you a couple of verses. Proverbs 19.21 reminds us that many are the plans of a man's heart. Nevertheless, it's the counsel of the Lord that shall stand. That's why just a few weeks ago, back as we were thinking about the new year, we were saying, may we submit all of our plans to the Lord, uh, James 4 and 5 language, because it's wickedness and it's evil to not do that. Just to live our lives saying, well, tomorrow, 
tomorrow it's going to snow, and tomorrow we're going to go do this, and tomorrow we're going to go do that. You've been having those very conversations today, and you know it. You've already planned out the next three days, anticipating being stuck at home, and I'm trying to be funny to make a point. The point is, is we talk like that all the time, but what we ought to be doing is saying, if the Lord wills. And that's not Bible Billy language, that's Bible language. That's what James says. He says, him that knows to do good, it's sin. If you don't, if you don't speak in such a way that honors God in your language, to him that knows to do that, after he's been instructed, and yet he continues to boast and talk about his plans. There's no problem in making plans. It's the submitting of your plans to the Lord. Proverbs 19.21, that's what it's saying. Many are the plans of a man's heart, but nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, it is that that will stand. Isaiah 46, verse 10 reminds, it, uh, reminds us as well. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. In Genesis chapter 12, we've got the wonderful Abrahamic covenant, if you remember. Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, where God tells Abraham, Abraham, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing to the nations. I will bless those, here's the phrase, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and it's through you, in you, that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here we see an example of those who are cursing the Jews, seeking the Jews' destruction, and we see the Abrahamic covenant realized in one sense, as we see these enemies seeking to devour God's people. One other example is Isaiah fifty-four seventeen: No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Well, coming back to our text and looking at Esther chapter 9, verse 2, our text tells us that the Jews gathered together in their cities, notice throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes, to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could withstand them because the fear of them fell upon all of the people. So verse 3 describes for us the protection that is then given. This protection comes not only from without, but it comes from above, those in government. And all the officials, the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work, they helped the Jews. We don't know exactly what all they did, whether it was the provision of weapons, whether it was giving them armament and resources, whether it was helping them to hide or to fight. Very clearly, the tenor here is that uh, they helped them to ri rise up and fight. But the, the bottom line is, is those in positions of power out of fear of Mordecai, our text tells us, the renown of Mordecai, began to come along and assist the Jews all over the empire. Verses 3 and 4 points to the favor and renown that Mordecai receives. And the reason that those government officials helped the Jews was because of the prominence of Mordecai. Remember, he's now the prime minister. All the influence, all the power that, that Haman had, Mordecai now has. Because the fear, verse 3 and 4, of Mordecai fell upon these men. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame had spread throughout all of the provinces. Again, just a reminder to how fast the Lord turns hearts. We see the hidden hand of the Lord working in King Xerxes and exposing Haman and giving favor to Esther, raising up Mordecai at the right time and at the prominent time 
And now we find, as we pointed out last time together, that the Persian Empire, this global empire, is now ruled by a Jewish prime minister, and they now have a Jewish queen. It's just mind-blowing. It's, fan- it's, it's like one of those ESPN 30 for 30 stories, documentaries, that starts off with the phrase, what if I told you? And it pulls out the facts of the situation and leaves you hanging, and you're like, i got to know, how did that happen? And then they go back to the beginning, and they begin to walk through it. Well, number one, we see this famous day, this imminent day has come. Secondly, in verses 5 through 11, we see the destruction of the Jews' enemies given to us. In church, there's no way to sugarcoat any of verses 5 through 11. It, it just is what it is. The Jews were either going to be destroyed, or they can fight and fend for themselves and, and fight back. And there is much bloodshed. It's the blood of war. It's the shedding of blood. Uh, this is just what it is. There's no, uh, the point tonight is not to gloss over and to say, be a true and better Esther, uh, be a true and better Mordecai, be big and have favor like Mordecai. Listen, the, God gets all the glory. Uh, we see examples, as we see attributes, as we see characteristics in some of these individuals, but there's nothing to gloat in outside of the protection and the victory that the Jews experience in verses 5 through 11. You say, well, Graham, why are you saying that? Well, just interesting, I looked at probably 25 to 30 commentaries on this passage, and they're split right down the middle, and about half of them uh, cannot speak any word favorably, almost to the point where they think this is, this is completely wrong, and the other half almost glamorize and gloss over it too glibly, as if it's just they're looking over the bloodshed and the facts of war. and the tra- and So it is what it is. So I'm not trying to do either. We just take it as it is. We don't try to sterilize the text. We just take it as it is and trust the providence of God and knowing that his purposes will stand. Notice in verses 5 through 6, we see the destruction, the reporting. It's like the author of Esther is kind of giving us these reports. And live, verses 5 and 6, live from Shushan. What's going on there? Well, it tells us, Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword with the slaughter and destruction, and they did what they, what would they please with those who hated them. And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. I, I looked as much as I could into the phrase, they did what they, they, they uh, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And outside of the context of the scripture, the one restraining thing is, is not maybe as bad as you think it is. Sometimes we think about the reports of warfare. I think the phrase that we see repeated three times in this text, that they did not plunder, makes clear, and the text makes clear that only men were killed. Now, if you go back to the decree in chapter 8, I believe it is verse 11, the decree was given that they could kill man, woman, and child, and plunder. They could take all of it. That was the Persian law that was given. But the, the, right, the Holy Spirit and the writer of Esther does not tell us that, tells us that that's not what they did. In fact, there's an emphasis that they did not take of the plunder. And the emphasis of those that were killed are, are men. Notice in verses 7 through 10, and, and also the men that were killed were not innocent men. They were men seeking to take their lives. Let's just make sure that's, that's very clear. In fact, I'll just tell you, I was disappointed in many of the commentaries that I was looking at. They were trying to explain away and try to find a way to excuse. There's nothing to excuse. Warfare is ugly. Bloodshed is ugly. 
But yet, here we see an exemption in Scripture, and we see it throughout the Old Testament. Many people struggle with the commands in Joshua, where God tells His people to go into the land and to wipe out the land of its inhabitants. But friends, there's a lot there. Uh, there's more there than, we, you cannot judge history outside of its, its context. And I'll just kind of hit pause here for a second and touch on that briefly, because I have no doubt some of you are wondering about that. Listen, when God sent his people into the promised land, first and foremost, he was eradicating the land of idols. He was eradicating the land of people that had rejected him. Remember, when Rahab said, we have heard of your God, we have heard all about him. And how did Rahab respond to the God of the Jews that delivered them out of Egypt? She responded in saving faith. She said, we know we're idolaters, we know our iniquity, and I want to be spared, will you save us? And mercy was shown to Rahab. Mercy was given to her. I just want to make that point of an example. But those that um, rejected that, there are opportunities they heard, they knew, but there's a number of factors that go into it. Some of those factors were that these lands and these nations and these um, worship practices were abominable. God did not want his people being affected and exposed to many of the physical diseases and many of the practices that are unspeakable here in a mixed audience. And so in that, that point, God is, has a, a, you know, I'll just say this, God is holy, right, and just, and he cannot sin. So I know while we have limited minds and limited perspectives, it's not murder for God to take a life. He gives life. God could simply cease giving life, and God is on a realm of perfection and justice and holiness that, that, it, it, that is far removed from us. And yet, God had His purposes. God sent His people in, and He told them to eradicate the land of all the idolatry, bestiality, sexual sins, and all the things that were taking place there to preserve His people, to preserve the line of the Messiah. So, just an example, and I'm sure... Some will want to talk about that. Be happy to do so. We come back to our text here in Esther chapter 9, and we see the slaying of the sons of Haman. We see, we'll take a look at their names for a second. You, you'll see why I just passed over them. So, very difficult. But verses 7 through 10 gives us these specific names. And the implication is by historians and commentators that these men were leading the revolt. They're avenging the death of their father they've been fomenting they're responding and these are leaders their names are very explicitly given verse 10 these are the 10 sons of Haman the son of Hamadatha the enemy of the Jews and they killed them but they did not lay a hand on their plunder that's the first mention that we see there kind of helping us to put a frame on what this is just war theory if you want to give a, an example uh, in, the, in this day that type of thing while the law of the land said they could the, the Jews did not here we see the sons of Haman are slain. Then in verse 10, we see for the first time the spoils are refused, and this is stressed for us multiple times. I want to give you just a contrast. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 14, verses 21 through 23. Genesis chapter 14, verses 21 through 23. And I did a little study on the spoils of war, and I'll just bring two of these to the forefront for us. Genesis chapter 14, verse 21. And I want to give a contrast in light of our text of the two accounts of the spoils of war. The first one is given here in the life of Abraham in Genesis 14, verse 21. Now the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. 
But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, the God, the Most High, the Lord, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you say, notice here why, lest you say, we have made Abraham rich. Lest this be your claim to fame, if you will. Listen, Abraham knew that the Lord had called him, provided for him. Abraham takes his soldiers regularly to go to deliver uh, those that were taken and kidnapped. And he will not take of the possessions of the individuals. And he wants God to get all the glory. Now, is that why they did that in Esther chapter 9? We don't know. The text doesn't say. But that's one contrast. Now, bookend it with a second contrast. Let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. And I think we'll see a hint here. I just cannot help but think there's a thread, a hint here, of why God's people did not touch a thing. It, it was just for them to do it according to the law of the land. But remember the story. Who is this? This is the Jews fighting back against, in one sense, the munitions or the planning of the ancient Amalekites represented in Haman the Agagite or ancient King Agag. Now in 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 17, remember I referenced it a moment ago, in the life of King Saul. And remember, so, so Samuel, verse 11, uh, 1 Samuel 15, verse um, 17. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, and this is what he told you to do, Saul, and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and gone on the mission which the Lord sent me, and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. Wait a second, you're saying two things. Both things can't be true. You can't obey the Lord and fulfill the mission of the Lord and bring back Amalek. The command of the Lord was to wipe them out. But notice how good Saul sounds. Notice how winsome he sounds. He says, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and brought back King Amalek. Okay, those two things cannot both be true at the same time. No, Saul, you're delusional, you're disobedient. He says here, I brought back Agag, king of Amalek, but I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Well, you've not utterly destroyed the Amalekites if their king still lives. That's just rules of war 101. If you want to defeat the enemy, you take out the general or you take out the king. And the people will lose their heart. They will be defended. Verse 21, but the people took of the plunder. He blames the people. They took of the plunder, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things which should have utterly been destroyed to sacrifice. Notice how he sanctifies this sin. To sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Now, just as an aside, verse 21 is why many believe. It's kind of a proof text why Saul did not know the Lord. He was not a believer. Notice simply his language. He's speaking to the prophet, and he doesn't even claim the God of Israel. Now, some would say, no, 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 he's just making a personal point. But some would use that text as a further example to say Saul was not a believer. Just an aside there. Where he says, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey Saul is better than sacrifice, and and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. 
Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So an interesting contrast, and I think the second bookend, the second one of Saul taking and not obeying the word of the Lord and taking of the plunder, it was in taking of the plunder and disobeying the word of the Lord while they're in the position that they're in here in Esther chapter 9. I just think it's, again, I can't be dogmatic about it, but the Holy Spirit very clearly wants us to know that they did not take of the plunder. This was not on their radar. They're simply defending themselves. Now, coming back to the book of Esther, chapter 9, we saw, number one, the day of the decree. We see, secondly, the destruction. And then, thirdly, we see the demands that are solicited from Queen Esther. Notice how the king in, it comes to her and draws out in some questions, he asked her what their needs are. Verse 12, And King Xerxes said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men here in the, in the citadel, Shushan the citadel. And that includes the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? What is your petition? It shall be granted to you. And what is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther responded, and she said, If it pleases the king... Let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to the decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. At first reading, that rings odd. Like what? They're dead. Are, are you hanging them again? Is this speaking of how they died the first time? If you're not reading carefully, you know, you can, you can raise some questions. So what's going on here? Well, it's believed by many that Esther is receiving intelligence reports, both Esther and Mordecai. Esther has the ear of the king. She's closest to the king. Maybe Mordecai obtained these reports. But it's believed that these ten sons of Haman are involved in a secret plot, anticipating that once this day is done, and the Jews are in feasting mode, celebrating Purim before the Feast of Purim has been declared, as we see in verses 18 to the end of the chapter, that there's going to be a second wave of destruction. These terrorists are going to come in, the enemy's going to come in, and while they're feasting and celebrating, thinking that the victory is sure, the plot was that they would come back and overtake the Jews while they are celebrating. Well, these plots have been discovered, and very, and in one sense, the lives of Esther and Mordecai may have been sensed to be in danger. All we know for sure, ultimately, is that the king asks Esther, what is your request? And so she interestingly says, can we have one more day to fight, one more day to withstand the bloodshed? She secondly asked that the bodies of the sons be publicly displayed there in verse 13. Many experts say this was to discourage further fighting once the people, the Persians, saw these men, these sons of Haman, hanging visibly, publicly like Haman himself, that they would lose heart, be dispirited, and give up. Then verse 14 tells us that the king heard her request, and he commanded this to be done. The decree was then issued in Shushan, and they hung up Haman's ten sons. Again, not glorious, not glamorous. These are just the facts of history. Fourthly, we see the death of more enemies in verses 15 and 16. Notice the description is given to us that even more are killed. And the total is given that at the end, there in verse 16, and they killed 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay a hand on their plunder. 
Well, our text there tells us in verses 15 and 16 that the Jews in Susa fought for two days on the 13th and the 14th, and they celebrated on the 15th. Out in the villages in the remote parts of the areas, it was probably certain that they did not get the word, Esther's request. They did not get that by the postal service, the Pony Express in time. It tells us that they fought on the 13th and they celebrated on the 14th. The total number of Jews, or excuse me, that the Persians that were uh, killed on that second day were 75,000 total in the empire. Just remember, that sounds like a lot of people, and it is. 75,000 souls made in the image of God. But remember, 6 million Jews, it just look like numbers. It's not about the contrast of Jews and Gentiles, but 6 million uh, were eradicated uh, in the Holocaust. The reason I bring that up is many scoffed, many... Uh, professed Bible believers, historians, commentators have rejected the book of Esther twofold. One, because it doesn't mention God. And secondly, they said there's no way that many people were killed or whatever. But we can see from modern warfare, uh, that's not hard to imagine in any way whatsoever. This kingdom is vast. It's somewhere, again, as I said earlier, 50 to 75 million people. This is minuscule numbers compared uh, to the total uh, amount of people that were here. I think what's interesting is we kind of wrap up our thoughts on the lesson here this evening is that the Holy Spirit wants us to know that the Jews, in a sense, they're fighting for themselves. Many commentators use the word revenge. And they went on to say, and it just depends on your under your take of this passage, admittedly. I view this passage as they are defending themselves. The Lord is delivering his people, but many took time to lecture. Uh, the whole idea of revenge, and certainly we know that vengeance of, is mine, Romans 13 says, says the Lord. But I don't think it, this passage is about that. I think it, this is about the Lord's deliverance of his people, and I think what is so amazing is that the Jews do not completely give in to the lusts of the flesh. They have mastery over themselves in a moment where they could have easily, like Achan, just started pulling in Babylonian garments and gold bars and wedges and brought sin into the camp, if you will, as Achan did. Swindoll says this, what's so amazing about this story is not that the Jews gained mastery of their enemies, but that they gained mastery over themselves. I think that's a great point, as the Holy Spirit emphasizes that key point multiple times. Well, as we come down to the end of our story tonight, our account here in Esther, it's a historical account, just some lessons that we take away from this key chapter in church. I can't say it again, and I can't say it enough. But it's a reminder to us that God rules history. I know it's trite. I know it is, but I'm going to say it anyway. Now, Wednesday night, I told you I wasn't going to say something trite, but I'm, I'm going to say something trite here. History is his story. You know, the H-I-S is the first part of that capital H. It really is. It's trite, but it's true. God is writing history. We're living in 2024, and we're not living in a moment as if things are on autopilot. We're not in fear of AI, and we're not in fear of, we're just not in fear. And the reason we're not in fear, you could pull in any type of thing of, of some, another worldwide lockdown and all those other things. Bottom line, the reason we're not in fear is our God reigns. We know the end of the story. We're not promised, you know, ultimate eggshell, um, bubble-wrapped lives where we'll never experience uh, problems and difficulties and heartache and disease and loss. We're just not promised that, church, and you need to know that. We need to buckle up. We need to, we need to just get tough, <laughs> for lack of better words. Uh, we need to trust in our sovereign God who's 
awesome and great who rules and reigns. And Esther is telling all of this, every verse, every chapter, God is in control. So worship him and serve him because all the world will very soon bow before him. Secondly, just in review of this chapter, we saw that a plot was, that was intended to destroy God's people resulted ultimately in a united people, a rejoiced people, and a people that resumed faith in their God. It's just so interesting. Sometimes the circumstances that we find ourselves in, as the people of God found themselves in, it seems crushing and daunting, but it's the very means that will restore our faith as we see our God at work and how He chooses to work and the ways that glorify Him and honor Him. I was thinking of Romans 8, verse 31, truly, where Paul says, if our God be for us, who can be against us? Now again, to be clear, we've said this all throughout the book of Esther, we're not the Jews, and we're not trying to over-apply um, the, the Jews to us here as the church today, but we are this, and we, this is our God. And our God is the same God, He's the same yesterday, and today, and forever. I want to give you this excerpt that I think is interesting from World War II. As soon as history ended, just as a reminder that God is watching over his people still. God is always watching. He's always reigning. But just an interesting story that I came across in my, in my study. A, a similar type of event took place 2,400 years following in 1953. That's eight years after World War II. Joseph Stalin of the Soviet Union unveiled a plan to exterminate 3 million Jews in the USSR. This data was